information. Are you a member of the true church? How many true churches are there? What is the true church? How can you know if you are in the true church? And if you are in the true church, how can you stay in the true church of God? These are questions every person who desires to be a genuine Christian faces, and we should know the answers. Not knowing the answers has already put the salvation of many in jeopardy, and can put your salvation in jeopardy. A good deal of misinformation has been propagated concerning the matter of being in the church and how it relates to our standing before God. Years ago, in the midst of an apostasy being engineered by the leaders of a Church of God fellowship, people were told that God called them into a particular corporate church body, and that's where he expected them to stay. Individuals have said, God called me into this church, meaning a particular church corporate organization, and this is where I'm staying. So, one question we ought to ask is, is that indeed what God has called us into? Is that true? Others have said, Mr. X, and you insert the name, is God's anointed, so whatever he says, I'll follow. And to leave the church, perceived as a human corporate organization, is rebellion against God's anointed. Is that true? Is a particular religious leader God's anointed and is leaving the corporate church led by such a leader rebellion against God or his anointed? In the midst of wholesale doctrinal changes, members of what had been purported to be God's church were told God will never leave you nor forsake you. The implication being that he will never leave you or forsake you if you remain attached to a particular corporate church organization. Would, would God himself forsake a particular church organization? Is it true that God makes an unconditional promise to never leave us or forsake us if we simply remain attached to a particular corporate body? Would God want us to leave a church that we had at one time thought was God's true church, but had begun teaching things that were contrary to Scripture, promoting doctrines contrary to Scripture, and rejecting the teachings of Scripture. Would God want us to remain in fellowship with such a church? I want to deal with these questions and help you find the answers to them, and I want to discuss some general principles that will help us understand what it means to be in the true church of God how you may identify the true church, how one may become a part of it, and once a part of it, remain a part of it. And my purpose is not to attack anyone or any church organization, but to help you understand the truth about some rather urgent questions that possibly you and your family or friends have dealt with or may deal with in the future. First, we need to understand just what is a church. In the New Testament, two words frequently appear, either of which could be understood as equivalent to the English word church. One of those words is ecclesia, which literally means called out from, and it's usually translated church in the King James 
Bible, although it's also occasionally translated assembly. In New Testament usage, it generally implies an assembly, either general or local, of people called out of the world. And the church, the church of God, consists of those who have been called out of darkness into the light of God's truth, who have responded to their calling in a positive way. Being called out of the world implies being called out of a condition of spiritual darkness and ignorance into the light of God's truth because the world is deceived. We read in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, you, speaking to the church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Note that the church is called out of darkness into his or God's marvelous light. Light here is a metaphor for the truth of God's word. As we read in Psalm 119 verse 105, Psalm 119 verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And in Psalm 119, verse 130, the entrance of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. In Isaiah 8, verse 20, Isaiah 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And in 2 Peter 1, verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So light is often given in Scripture as a metaphor for the Scriptures, for the Word of God, for the truth of God's Word. And the calling, the calling out of darkness is done through the proclaiming of God's Word. His truth to those willing to hear. To the, to the church in Thessalonica, it is written in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, Paul is writing this, and us, it would be him and those who were, uh, worked with him to proclaim the gospel. When you uh, received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So they had, had proclaimed to them the word of God, and they had received it and welcomed it. Not as... The, just the mere words of men, but as the word of God. And Paul and Barnabas, preaching to a crowd in a Jewish synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, said to them, as we read in Acts 13, verse 26, Acts 13, verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Paul and Barnabas were there bringing them a message of salvation, the word of God. Afterward, after they finished that particular Sabbath, 
speaking in that Jewish synagogue, which also had Gentile converts or proselytes, the word spread rapidly throughout the city. And then it says, on the next Sabbath, and this is in verse beginning of verse 44 of Acts 13, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed to the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, speaking to the Jews, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So the word of God was proclaimed to the people in this synagogue, including Jews and Gentiles. Then later, nearly the whole city, which would be mostly Gentiles, since it was a Gentile city, Nearly the whole city came to hear the message, but most of the Jews of that synagogue evidently became jealous and envious and rejected the message. They could have either accepted it or they could have rejected it. They could have welcomed it, as did the people we read about in Thessalonica, or they could have rejected it, and in that case they rejected it. Those who hear the word of God have the option of receiving it or rejecting it. And that's your choice. It's the choice of each individual to whom the gospel is preached. One can either receive it, accept it, or they can reject it. Those who receive the word of God and respond to it can become a part of the true church. The second word for church in the New Testament is synagogue or synagogue, as it, it is in the anglicized version of the word. Synagogue is the Greek. And it means literally those brought together. It is usually simply translated into the anglicized form synagogue in the King James Version, but it is also translated into congregation and assembly. In the New Testament, the word synagogue usually refers to a Jewish assembly, the Jewish equivalent of what we would call a church, but it also is used in reference to Christian assemblies or churches, for example, as in James chapter 2 and verse 2. Some other words which you might want to consider in understanding what is the church are brethren, disciples, saints, the called, the elect, the chosen, the faithful, apostate, reprobate, false brethren, and false apostles. All of these words are words that are descriptive of the church or people in the church or people who are in some way associated with the church or claim to be. Essentially, a church is an assembly or a body of people called or brought together. In the Bible, however, there is a, a, is a distinction between the physical group of people that make up the visible or corporate church and the spiritual body which is the church in an absolute sense. The scriptures clearly reveal that within the visible physical church there are individuals who are not really converted. The Bible reveals that there can be division or schism within the visible church. 
Although such division is expressly contrary to God's will, God nevertheless allows it. And there has always been division in the church of God or schisms within the church of God. And that would include both the Old Testament church as well as the New Testament. The scriptures also show that there is a false church, a counterfeit church, which is not God's church at all, but is a church of Satan, even though it claims to be God's church and that there are false apostles, false ministers, and false brethren who claim to be Christian and appear to many to be Christian, but are not really Christians in the eyes of God. So what is it that we have been called into? In the baptism ceremony experienced by many of those who have responded to the true gospel in a positive way, it was stated that you were not being baptized into any denomination or sect of this world. In a valid baptism, one is baptized into Christ. As we read in Romans 6 and verse 3. Romans 6 and verse 3, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So notice we were baptized into Christ Jesus. A true Christian is one who has been been baptized into Christ and into his death. That means that we not only enter into a spiritual union with Christ, when we are baptized with, with a, a valid baptism, which includes repentance leading up to baptism and continuing throughout one's life, but we enter into a spiritual union with Christ, but we also die in a symbolic sense. We are to be changed from what we were before, which is what the metaphor of death means in this case. It means a change from what we were before as slaves of sin and instead of living as slaves to sin we are to live as servants of God. We read in Romans 6 and verse 6 Romans 6 and verse 6 knowing this that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So one who has experienced a true baptism and again that includes repentance, means that he is no longer to live as a slave to sin, but as a servant to God. Going on in Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, Romans 6 and verse 10, it says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Because Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. So, a true Christian is one who has been baptized, not into some organization of men, but into Christ, into his death, to become a new person, having been changed to a newness of life. Romans 6 and verse 4, Romans 6 and verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the, the 
dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Becoming part of the true church of God is a life-transforming event. As one is baptized into Christ, into his death, that person is also baptized into the church, the church of God. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The true church is, in a sense, the body of Christ. It is as it is infused with Christ's spirit. As we read in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, speaking to the church, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, now you that is, the members of the church collectively, are the body of Christ and members individually. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of God, is living in those who are part of the true church. We no longer live to ourselves, and we're no longer to live like we lived prior to conversion. In a valid baptism, one is baptized not in the name of any man or of any church, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ told those that he sent out as apostles to preach the gospel in Matthew 28 verse 19 these were the instructions he gave them go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit when God calls you through the preaching of the gospel he calls you not into a corporate body and not into an organization of men but as we read in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We enter into a relationship, a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. According to Scripture, then, this is what we are called into. We are called into the truth and into a particular kind of fellowship with Jesus Christ who is the very personification of truth. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice Jesus said that he is the truth. That is, he is the very embodiment, the personification, the source, the wellspring of truth. And that's what we are called into in that relationship with Jesus Christ. And we are called to be a part of the true church. As we read in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 beginning at verse 22, Paul writing to the church said, You have come to to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God the judge of all to the spirits of just men made perfect 
to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So, as we read here, the true spiritual church of God consists of the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Who are registered in heaven. In other words, their names are registered in heaven. And as we read in Hebrews 13 and verse 14, here we have no continuing city, but as it says in Philippians 3 and verse 20, 20, uh, Philippians 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. That doesn't necessarily mean that we aren't citizens of whatever country we may uh, inhabit or dwell in, but our primary citizenship and the preeminent citizenship for any real Christian is his citizenship in heaven, in the kingdom of God, as his name is registered in the book of life. Because the true church of God consists of those who are registered in heaven whose names are written by God in the book of life as it is termed in scripture. And it is they, if their names remain written in the book of life, to whom the promise of eternal life pertains. When God's presence with men, uh, when God's presence is with men, I should say, in the future, in the new Jerusalem, when God comes down to the earth to dwell and inhabit the earth with men, that is God the Father, along with Jesus Christ in the new Jerusalem, we're told in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 27, Revelation 21 and verse 27, there shall by no means enter it, that is the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who's, who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So no one, when all is said and done, will be there in the New Jerusalem, which is symbolic of the kingdom of God, and that will be the, you might say, the capital city of the kingdom of God, which will encompass the entire universe, but their names will be written in the book of life, and if the name is not there, they won't be there. So, if you are indeed a part of the true church of God, your name is registered in heaven. And the true membership role, if you want to put it in those terms, of God's church is not in any book on earth, but it is the book of life in heaven. Not all who are of the visible church that claim to be a a part of the church of God, of the corporate church, the visible church on earth, not all are of the true spiritual body of Christ. Israel at Mount Sinai, though called out of Egypt, had many faithless people who remained in their sins. And Israel serves as an example for us. We are warned that we within the church 
will fall into the same errors as ancient Israel if we fail to diligently pursue the true faith. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples. Notice that these things were an example, a lesson for us to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fell nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain and some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, for our admonition, in other words, as a warning to us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Yes, we can fall. We can fall from grace. We can fall from having that relationship with God if we turn our backs on God and the truth of God. We are warned in Hebrews 3, beginning verse 12, Hebrews 3 and verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, for who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And then continuing in chapter 4, verse 1, goes on to say, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In other words, the same errors that were committed by the people who came out of Egypt under Moses who rebelled in the wilderness and who were denied entrance into the land of promise, that same, those same errors can befall us if we depart from the living God. And in such a circumstance the name of one who has been baptized can be removed from the book of life. 
in warning his church to hold fast to the truth and repent, Jesus said in Revelation 3 and verse 5, Revelation 3 and verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And that is a reference to those who will be in God's kingdom. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So we have to overcome. We have to overcome our own nature. We have to overcome those pulls, those lusts of the flesh, which constantly are before us that we have to struggle against daily. And all of the pulls of the world, all of the things that would distract us and cause us to perhaps turn our backs on God and the truth. But if we don't overcome, our names could be removed from the book of life. And so clearly that admonition implies that if we don't heed Christ's warning, he would remove our names from the book of life. And we're also warned in Revelation 22 and verse 19, Revelation 22 and verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. So God writes our names in the book of life, but he can also erase our names from the book of life if we are not faithful. Paul included in a list of perils that he faced in his ministry that he was, as we see, as we read in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26, that he was among false brethren, among false brethren. People who were nominally in the church, but Paul perceived that they were not truly converted, yet they were a part of, quote, the church. At least nominally. We see in the prophecy of Revelation concerning the church references to false apostles, false teachers, people who claim falsely to be spiritual Jews. We read of the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation of the synagogue of Satan in Revelation 2 and verse 2. Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, but have found them liars. So here were people who claimed, who were ostensibly a part of the church, claiming to be apostles of Jesus Christ, and yet they were not real apostles of Christ. They were imposters. To the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2 and verse 9, we read this, that Jesus said, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And he is speaking here to the church of God. The reference to those who falsely say they are Jews is speaking of Jews in a spiritual sense, not of the flesh, but those who claim to be spiritual Jews, converted people, members of the church of God, but they are not. As we read in Romans 2 and verse 29, Romans 2 and verse 29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter 
His praise is not from men, but from God. To the church in Pergamos, Jesus made this statement in Revelation 2, beginning with verse 14. Revelation 2 and verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So here are within the church of God people who are subverting the church and teaching heresies, leading people astray. To the church in Thyatira, Revelation 2 beginning verse 20, Revelation 2 and verse 20, Jesus said, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira that is, as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan as they say I will put on you no other burden but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end to him I will give power over the nations. So again, we see uh, throughout these messages pretty much to the church in different eras of the history of the church as it was prophesied here in Revelation that there would be imposters, there would be uh, people who were heretics leading people astray, claiming falsely to be apostles, claiming falsely to be Christians. And yet, doing things that were unacceptable to God and for which he would send punishments upon the church and upon those who were guilty. We are not commanded in Scripture to abide in any particular corporate body nor any other organization of men but we are told to abide in Christ. That's what we are told to abide in and in His Word. As we read in John 15, beginning verse 4, John 15, verse 4, Abide in Me, Jesus said, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out. 
as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So we must abide in Christ as we are instructed. For us to abide in Christ, His words must abide in us. In John 15 and verse 7, John 15 verse 7, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So, abiding in Christ means that Christ's words live in us, dwell in us. And we walk in accordance with those words. We are to abide in His love, which requires keeping His commandments. As Jesus said in John 15, beginning in verse 9. John 15, verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In 1 John 3 and verse 24, 1 John 3 and verse 24, John wrote, Now he who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. In other words, us abiding in Christ and He in us is contingent on our keeping His Word, which includes His commandments. We read in 1 John 2 and verse 4, 1 John 2 and verse 4, He who says, I know Him, in other words, who claims to know uh, Christ, to know the Lord, We uh, hear people asking the question, do you know the Lord? Or using that phrase in writing. And they claim to know Christ. But it says, he who says, I know him, I know the Lord, I know Jesus Christ, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We have those who frequently use the phrase, Jesus is king. Jesus is king, but if Jesus is king, why don't we do what he says? Why don't we follow his commandments? Despite clever arguments to the contrary, the Sabbath, the holy days, tithing, and other laws rejected by most nominally Christian churches are among the commandments of God and of Christ. Jesus taught and set an example of keeping these commandments. The apostles, for the most part, as history shows, their immediate successors continued in the commandments. And yet vast numbers of people who believe themselves to be Christians walk according to human-devised church traditions, traditions which have supplanted God's commandments in matters of religious observance. Jesus Christ's and the apostles' clear teachings and examples are often ignored in favor of tradition or whatever may be popular at the moment. We have many churches today who claim to be Christian churches who are flying what are called gay flags out on their flagpoles in front of their churches accepting a 
type of behavior that God calls an abomination. And that's just one of the evidences of how church tradition, church tradition and things that people are willing to accept while claiming to be the church of Jesus Christ have gone astray. Scripture teaches in 1 John 2 and verse 6, 1 John 2 and verse 6, he who says he abides in him ought also himself to walk just as he walked. In other words, we're to be walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ who kept the commandments of God, who kept the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath. On the seventh day of the week as God's word commands, he kept the feast of Passover of Pentecost of unleavened uh, of uh, Passover and unleavened bread Pentecost and uh, tabernacles and the other feasts of God he was not keeping Sunday as the weekly day of worship and he was not keeping Christmas Easter and similar holidays or so-called holy days of of human origin Many, even many among those who once understood clearly the importance of walking according to God's commandments, after the example of Jesus Christ and the apostles and the plain teaching of God's word have been confused or deluded by false assertions regarding the new covenant and derogatory epithets such as legalists, those who teach that we are to keep the commandments are often labeled as, quote, legalists, which is supposed to be a term of derision and condemnation. But I might ask, where do you find in the Bible God punishing anyone for obeying His commandments? Where do you find God punishing anyone for obeying His commandments? The commandments which tell us to love God and worship Him only. The commandments that tell us that we are not to worship idols or have any graven images. The commandments that tell us that we are not to blaspheme the name of God, that we are to keep the Sabbath. Where do you find anyone punished for keeping the Sabbath? Where do you find anyone punished for honoring his father and mother, as the Bible requires. Where do you find anyone being punished for not murdering, not stealing, not lying, not lusting, not committing adultery? You won't find that in the Bible. What you will find, though, are plenty of warnings and examples of punishment for disobedience to the commandments. Notice how the church of God is described or defined in Scripture in Revelation 21 and verse 17, or excuse me, Revelation 12 and verse 17. The dragon was enraged with the woman, the dragon being Satan, was enraged with the woman, and here the woman is symbolic language for the church of God, and he, that is the dragon or Satan, went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice the church is described as those who keep 
the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ or the word, the teachings of Jesus Christ. We also read in Revelation 14 verse 12, Revelation 14 verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And notice again the saints, those who are part of the church. Saints is a word for one who is sanctified or made holy through the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So hence, is speaking of the church. And they are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, who live according to the faith and example of Jesus Christ, who keep the commandments of God's word. In the, in the New Testament, we're told in Revelation 22 and verse 14, Revelation 22 and verse 14, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life or eternal life and may enter through the gates into the city. We read earlier that only those who, whose names are written in the book of life will enter into the city. So, one lightly assumes at the peril of his eternal life that the commandments referred to do not include the Sabbaths and others widely rejected, which are God's commandments. And it can be definitively proven that such commandments are binding under the new covenant, contrary to what you might have been taught. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ hates lawlessness, which is a rejection of the laws of God as it's stated in Hebrews 1 and verse 9. And the Greek word there for lawlessness is the Greek word anomia, which means without law, implying contempt for and rejection of the law of God. Christ, as we read in Revelation 2, as we read earlier, hates the deeds and doctrines of the Nicolaitans a symbolic term for haters of God's law who by their teachings lead members of God's church into committing idolatry and spiritual fornication. On the other hand, it's those who overcome such deceptions who are promised eternal life. Revelation 2 and verse 11. Revelation 2 and verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death is the final judgment of God on those who reject His laws and commandments, who will not obey Him. As mentioned earlier, Christ's church consists of those who have fellowship with Christ into which we are called. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And to have fellowship with Christ requires walking in the light, which as we mentioned earlier is a metaphor for the truth or the Word of God as opposed to walking in darkness. 1 John 1 and verse 5, 1 John 1 and verse 5, This is the message which we have heard 
from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The Sabbath, the holy days, are just the more obvious doctrines of the Bible that have been rejected or adulterated by leaders who have turned from the truth. And it tells us in Ephesians 5 verse 11, Ephesians 5 verse 11, that we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Those who reject the truth, those who no longer believe the truth, regardless of their position, regardless of any titles they might have or claim, they are unbelievers. And we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, do not become unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? So we cannot enter into or remain in those fellowships as leaders reject the truths of God's word and teach doctrines contrary to God's word. Scripture asks in Amos 3 and verse 3, Amos 3 and verse 3, can two walk together unless they are agreed? And Jesus said in Matthew 12 verse 25, Matthew 12 verse 25, every house divided against itself will not stand. So even though typically the church has within it people who are hypocrites, people who are not really converted, sooner or later there has to be a sorting out and Jesus Christ will see to it in due time how all of that comes to pass. But we cannot afford to be in a fellowship that blatantly and obviously teaches against God's word, rejects the truth, and teaches falsehoods and false traditions, false doctrines. We are admonished many times in Scripture to be unified, not merely in some superficial manner, but to be of one mind. And such unity cannot be accomplished by being forced through intimidation or coercion. Before we can hope to be of one mind with one another in the way that God intends, we must first individually become of one mind with Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, we're told in Philippians 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 and verse 5, and in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, 1 Peter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So, we are to lay our lives on the line, so to speak, to be willing to give ourselves as living sacrifices for the truth, for Jesus Christ, having the mind of Christ.
under the new covenant, as we yield to him, Christ engraves his very law, which expresses his mind and nature in our minds. People talk about the covenants and the new covenant, but what is the new covenant? In Hebrews 10 and verse 16, Hebrews 10 and verse 16 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. That's the covenant. At least that's an important facet of the covenant. And under the new covenant, the laws of God, the same commandments that were engraved in stone at Mount Sinai are to be written in our hearts and minds so that we obey them from the heart. And as we learn to truly live by God's Ten Commandments as expanded and magnified by His Word and by Christ's example, and as we grow in having the mind of Christ developed in us, then we can become more like-minded with one another. If we all have the mind of Christ, then it stands to reason that we will be like-minded with one another. Paul wrote, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, I call upon you, brethren, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the same thing you may all say, that there may not be divisions among you, and you may be perfected in the same mind and then in the same judgment. That's from Young's literal translation of 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. And as the Young's literal translation makes clear, Paul was writing in the subjunctive mood, the mood of contingency. He wasn't saying we are all of the same mind, that, but that we, it said the same thing you may all say. It is what we are supposed to be doing. It is urging the brethren to be of one mind to have unity of mind with Christ and with one another. But because of carnality of mind among them, these same Corinthians, the Corinthian church lacked unity. There was division among them, as there is division almost always in the church. And Paul recognized that some truly converted people are more spiritually mature than others. They're, they're at different levels or degrees of conversion and the perfect unity of mind that we all should be striving toward is a goal toward which we would should be striving and toward which we should be growing. Even so, while making allowances for individual differences and levels of spiritual maturity, the converted ought to maintain a minimum of unity of mind in things of major importance. As we read in Philippians 3 and verse 15, Philippians 3 and verse 14, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind to the degree that we have already attained. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So again, this is a goal that the church ought to be growing toward having unity of mind among the brethren 
to constitute the church. One of the primary reasons Jesus Christ established a ministry to serve the church is to develop and strengthen the bonds of unity through their example and through sound doctrine. As we read in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 11, Ephesians 4 and verse 11, He gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, meaning we're not perfect yet, for the perfecting of the saints unto the work of ministering unto the building up of the body of Christ till we all attain unto the unity of the faith. Notice again, this is something that is a goal which we are to be working toward. Uh, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice that these two things go together. Unto a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice that unity is to be centered on faith. That is, our beliefs or our system of belief and on the knowledge of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The word translated knowledge here is the Greek word epignosis. Epignosis, which means precise and correct knowledge. Precise and correct knowledge. Not a a flawed understanding of Christ and who he is, but a precise and correct knowledge of the Son of God. And these are matters of the mind. They relate directly to doctrine as well as to how one lives. Paul exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. He said, Be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And he further said in verse 16, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. A ministry faithfully practicing and teaching sound biblical doctrine is a key to the development of unity of mind that God wills for his church. And yet we are warned that there would be in our midst those of another mind who would lead many into the path of destruction. We read a number of warnings about this in Scripture. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 1, 2 Peter 2 and verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who, brought, who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Notice that there would be false teachers who would blaspheme the way of truth and deceive many people within the church. The natural fleshly mind, the carnal mind, with which we are all born, we're told in Romans 8 and verse 7, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Romans 8 and verse 7. Even as it was in the New Testament church, within any church body, there can be those 
even in the ministry who allow their carnal minds to prevail over God's spirit. And they are or become, as we read in 2 Peter 2 and verse 2, they are or become men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. From such, withdraw yourself. And this can happen in any church. Even within a church that actually is recognized as a part of the true church of God, but it can quickly become something else. These false teachers cause the way of truth to be blasphemed. And as we read in Jude 4, Jude 4, they are men who have crept in unnoticed, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into licentiousness or lawlessness. And as we read in Jude 18 and verse, uh, verses 18 and 19, these are mockers walking according to their ungodly lusts, sensual or worldly, worldly persons who cause divisions. Yes, such men teaching falsehoods, teaching lawlessness, contrary to true doctrine, cause divisions, and we are to withdraw ourselves from them. Many times in the history of the church, division has occurred as a result of heretical teachings being introduced. People have had to choose to obey the truth or take the easy expedient course of conforming to the wishes of those who are humanly in charge. This occurred at the end of the apostolic age as new leaders began to compromise with the world and most of the what was uh, called the church of God followed those apostate leaders. The vast majority followed them. Most of them chose to abandon the truth and go the way of compromise. And that has occurred many other times within the church, both before and since. During the human lifetime of Christ, we read in John 12, beginning with verse 42, John 12, verse 42, even among the rulers, many believed in him, that is in Christ, but many of the Pharisees did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Yes, their status in the, quote, church, the synagogue, was more important to them than obeying the truth. And so it has been down through the ages. Many allowed the church leaders of their day as the scripture tells us, to intimidate them into inaction concerning their convictions. And they chose remaining in fellowship with the church or the synagogue, the visible group of which they were a part. They chose fellowship with that group over having fellowship with Christ. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what choice would we make in that circumstance? Jesus warned us, John 16, verse 2, John 16, verse 2, he said, they will put you out of the synagogues or churches. They will put you out of the churches. And that happened even during the New Testament era. We read about it. Or warned that there would be times when unfaithful men would assume control 
over what had been the churches of God and would put Christ's own disciples out of the assemblies. And this was already happening before the close of the first century in 3 John chapter 1 and verse 9. 3 John 1 and verse 9, I wrote to the church, but by Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive this, wrote John to the church. And he told of people being put out of the church by these by by this uh, leader who was hostile to the truth. Diotrephes sought to supplant John the apostle who had testified of the truth. And people, faithful members, were being cast out of the church and he would not allow the church to be influenced by John. Or at least he tried to prevent that. We don't know how successful he was since this epistle was written to that church. It's preserved in Scripture for our information of what can happen. So our salvation is not in men. It is not in an institution. Our salvation is in faith towards God. In Isaiah 45 verse 22, Isaiah 45 verse 22, God said, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. We read in John 3 and verse 16, John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice what they're to believe in. They're to believe in Him to have eternal life. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 9, John 10 and verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus Christ is the door. Not any church or institution of men. In Acts 4 and verse 12, Acts 4 and verse 12, nor is there under heaven given among men, or excuse me, nor is there salvation in any other, where there is no other name besides that of Jesus Christ, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is only through Jesus Christ that we are to be saved. And we must not follow misguided men. We are not to allow misguided loyalty to any man or any organization of men to lead us into compromising the truth of God and hence rejecting God. Having the eternal as our God and being His people implies our continuing faithfulness in accepting and in obeying His commandments. And this is as true today as it was when Moses said it to the Israelites as they were about to enter the promised land. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 17. Deuteronomy 26, verse 17, Today, Moses said, You have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments, and His judgments, and that you will obey His voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be His special people, just as He has promised you that you should keep all His commandments. Notice that you should keep all His commandments. Not some of them, but all of them. And that He will set you high above all nations which He has made in praise, in name, and in honor. And that you may be a holy people 
to the Lord your God just as he has spoken. That That heritage has been passed on to the church of God. Not just physical Israel, but to the spiritual Israel, which is the church of God. Wherever an assembly of God's true church is, it will be walking in his ways and it will be keeping his commandments.